Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming. I guess, uh, you know, from a, a background perspective, um, I'm doing this all from memory, so undoubtedly I'll get all this wrong, but I, yeah. I believe you, you studied engineering at Waterloo. That's right. And then, um, you know, you, you started a variety of different businesses. You ended up starting Instacart. Yep. And um, I was hoping to just hear a little bit more about the origins of the company. I know you were iterating through a variety of ideas, a yep. variety of businesses. How did you converge on what Instacart was and how did you get going on that? Yeah. Um, and so I, I should mention one other thing from a background perspective. You're now working on your second company. That's right. And yeah. I don't know how much you can or cannot share, yeah, but yeah, of course. it'd be great to talk about that as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and let me know if there's like sure. uh, specific details that would be more interesting. Um, uh, so I, I was a um, supply chain engineer at Amazon and um, uh, was not fulfilled. I was like, there's got to be more to life than this. Um, um, I decided that I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I moved from Seattle to San Francisco and um, realized that the only real way of becoming an entrepreneur is to sort of really get your hands dirty. Um, so I started about, um, over the course of about a couple of years, I started about 20 companies. Um, they did all kinds of things like um, uh, at this time, um, you know, Zynga was uh, uh, growing very fast. And so I, I built um, um, an ad network for, um, uh, for social games. I built a Groupon specifically for food. At this time, Groupon was really big as well. Um, and um, all these companies failed, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was in San Francisco in, in my apartment. I, I realized that. Um, that all I had in my fridge um, was a bottle of hot sauce. Um, and, um, and this was a common problem for me. And this was, I was like, um, um, you know, and it didn't make sense to me. This was 2012 and we were ordering everything online um, except for groceries. And this is, here it is, there's a trillion dollar category um, that's still stuck offline. Um, and so I decided that I was going to bring this category online. Um, I started coding the first version of Instacart, and three weeks later, um, Instacart was born. Um, and at the time, of course, I, you know, because I was the only one in the company, I um, placed my order and then um, went to the store, <laughs> picked up my groceries, and I delivered them to myself. Um, and of course, I gave myself a nice tip. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the rest is history. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so when uh, Instacart got up and running, yeah. um, at the time, you know, about a decade before that, yeah. there was Webvan, which yeah. was one of the most famous creators yeah, in all of, of course. Silicon Valley history. It was backed by Sequoia. It yeah. raised a billion dollars or something. It hired yeah. this, uh, I think it was like the CEO of Accenture came in and started That's running right. it. And then it was like a total wipe. Yeah. And it was a very asset heavy business. What was the reception? Yeah. <laughs> when you told people that this is what you were going to do, did people were people like, that's a great idea? Were they like, how could you do this? Like, don't you know the history? What, what was kind of the reaction? Yeah. Um, I remember there was an um, investor meeting that I had in the early days. Um, and um, I walk into this meeting and I, I start um, um, presenting, right? And, you know, yeah, this is like 24-year-old Aporva. Like, I wanted to, like, really stand out. Um, and um, so my, my, my title under my logo was, uh, web van done right. Um, and um, I, I started, got to the second slide, third slide, and this investor literally um, uh, got up and left the room. Um, and I was like, is, is the meeting over? Like, you know, it's very clear I didn't get the term sheet. Um, um, but then he came back and um, he uh, slapped this floppy disk on, on the desk, on the table. All right. And he was like, um, this has the web van business plan 
you should go home, home and study it and you'll never do this company, mm. right? Um, and so the reception was not great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, if you, um, and this is like sort of what you see with a lot of um, uh, startup advice, it is very generic, right? And, um, and you actually have to step back and reason from first principles. Um, a lot had changed uh, since when Webvan uh, got started. Um, and uh, one of the main changes was the fact that um, now everyone was carrying um, a supercomputer uh, that was connected to the internet with GPS in their pockets. And so if you wanted to order your groceries, we could connect you with someone who was close to the grocery store who could pick and deliver the groceries to you. And we wouldn't need any trucks. We wouldn't need to, to hold inventory. Um, and so the world had actually changed pretty significantly. Um, and yet this conventional wisdom had not changed. And, um, and so the reception wasn't great, but then you, know, you start to uh, talk to people who are actually open to, to reasoning for first principles, and that you know, uh, got us our funding. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because during that era, there was a lot of things that had blown up 10 yep. years before that everybody thought would never work again. Yep. And then there was online versions of that. I think uh, there was Chewy on the pet food side, but also things like payments. Mm -hmm. And so as people, as PayPal sold to eBay, the mm -hmm. conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley started to become that payments is too hard. And so all sorts of people avoided payments for 10 years. That's right. And I think it's notable that um, both you and Stripe got funded by Mike Moritz, mm -hmm. who was in the middle of all this stuff back then. Yep. I think he was actually the board member on WebVM that blew up. That's right. But then there was sort of this rethinking of, you know, actually maybe it now works in the context of. Right. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about how uh, you started working with Sequoia and how you met them mm -hmm. and how that turned into a relationship given that they were so burnt yeah. on the yeah. prior sort of version of this? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, like you want to start a category defining company um, and um, the payments, you know, enormous uh, uh, TAM, grocery, enormous TAM. And if there are companies that can be built um, that have a shot of you know, transforming a category, um, that's a shot that you wanna take. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a, this famous um, saying in investing, which is that most um, investing mistakes are failures of um, omission rather than failures of commission, all right? Um, and so, you know, um, uh, early stages for a lot of companies, it really is like, you know, you're buying an option. Um, for this company to be successful. Um, and um, uh, now, of course, you know, as, you, as you get into a lot more details about Instacart, and uh, I'm sure with Stripe, um, you start to understand, yes, it is challenging, um, but um, with the approaches that we've taken, it actually is tractable. And, um, uh, and if you solve some of these problems, you can actually make it a, a you know, much more successful company. Yeah. What was the worst advice that you got in the early days besides just don't do this? <laughs> um, um, or what was the best advice in either direction? I'm just sort of curious, like where was the, the outlying insight or was it just, hey, I'm just going to keep grinding and it, it eventually works out? Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I felt like uh, a lot of startup advice is, uh, a lot of startups are actually um, created by um, uh, and remembered by the rules that they actually break. Um, you know, um, if you look at uh, a company like TikTok, for example, um, they they started they doing they did paid user acquisition to grow their their user base. That was considered to not be a, a, a practical thing to grow. Um, and so, 
you know, you always had to take advice um, uh, and really assess that for your own um, company. I think the most important advice that we got um, uh, multiple times, and it took me some time to uh, internalize, was um, uh, the, 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 the team that you build is the company that you build. Um, and you know, initially, as a, as a founder, I was just so um, uh, focused on getting things done that I would jump into any, any single problem myself um, until it was absolutely you know, in a place where I felt comfortable with. Um, but then you realize that you know, you've solved that problem for that moment. Um, the next quarter, that will break again, and the next quarter, it'll break again. And so the, the, the most scalable way to actually solve a problem is to step back and hire the team that can actually solve the problem. And um, that was an advice that uh, I, I got multiple times, I ignored. Um, but over time, that became the way, you know, as a CEO, I started to solve problems. Well, I guess related to team, what sort of characteristics do you think are most important for very early teams mm -hmm. or people that you hire into those teams? And then how does that differ for later stage companies? Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, you know, you have your, your um, core values that you hold dearly yourself um, that show up in the work that you do every day. Um, and for me, for example, um, they are number one, uh, intellectual honesty. Um, uh, you know, uh, early stages, it is, um, uh, you can make a lot of uh, uh, wrong decisions by focusing on, the, on, the, on hype, for example, or vanity metrics. But really, uh, you know, if you're intellectually honest, you get to the right answer. Uh, number two for me is, uh, you know, executing relentlessly, which is a combination of uh, urgency and excellence. Um, and um, number three, um, uh, uh, you know, is um, are, are you going to be able to, to scale as a leader? Um, uh, because in an early stage specifically, um, uh, you know, it's a very different company uh, quarter after quarter. Um, and so those are the, 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 the few things that I look for in early stage companies as we're scaling. And then do you think anything that changes late? Because I think the nature of people who show up to a later stage company yep. is different. Yep. Part of that is risk aversion. That's right. Part of that is now you have a brand so people feel like it's a safe thing to go to or yep. it's a status thing. Yep. And so how do you think about those different pools of people who both may be excellent but just very different? Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that there's a lot of people who have um, strong aversion to people like that. Um, but the reality is I think you actually need a combination of those people um, because uh, a lot of people who are in early stage um, may not have the deep domain experience that is required um, at the later stage. Um, and that's okay in the, in the early days, you kind of want the Swiss Army knives, um, but at, at later stages, um, you know, uh, those people are not able to scale as fast. Um, and so you do need a combination. Um, later stages, of course, is a lot of companies that get stuck in a place where they're still doing the same thing, the same playbook, uh, which obviously doesn't scale. So you do need the entrepreneurial DNA. Um, hopefully you can retain that from the early stages. Um, but it, it, it really is a combination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Instacart today is very different from where it was initially, which That's is right. usually a very positive sign for a company. Yeah. And it started off as a marketplace. It's still obviously an important marketplace. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, now you have like advertising mm -hmm. and um, services for grocers and other things. The marketplace side tends to be really hard to get going. Mm -hmm. And many companies struggle with a two-sided marketplace. And in your case, you had also um, people who were actually doing three things in some sense, right? You had the, the buyers, the, gro right. the, the grocers, and then the people who were actually helping with the delivery of goods mm -hmm. and services. How did you go about bootstrapping something? Because it's already hard enough to do two. Yeah. Like, how did you do three? And how do you think about that? Yeah. Um, 
So, so the way we look at the, at the business is um, Instacart's actually, um, uh, it's a, a four-sided marketplace um, today uh, where we have customers on the one side and we have retailers on the other side. Um, we have uh, people who are picking and delivering the groceries on the third side. And then fourth, we have advertisers. Uh, these are the people who are um, buying ads you know, when you search, for example, uh, a beverage. Um, and um, now, of course, uh, you know, once you have a marketplace, it's a virtuous cycle. Demand uh, begets supply, supply begets uh, demand. It's, it's you know, uh, really wonderful. Um, uh, but to actually get that started, you have to solve this chicken and egg problem, um, which is um, you know, not trivial. Um, and, and so you know, we were this, this small company based in, in my apartment. And so uh, you know, getting uh, a, a large you know, a Fortune uh, uh, you know, 500 um, retailer like a Kroger or Costco to sign a partnership with us was just going to be impossible. Um, and so what we did was we, we um, invented this thing called ninja shopping, um, which uh, was um, effectively that we would just go to an, uh, a, a store, buy the st uh, stuff off the shelf, go to the, the checkout, and deliver the, the groceries to the customers. And um, um, you know the only problem was we didn't know what any of the stores actually carried, all right? Um, and you couldn't find it anywhere online. Like I was like totally okay scraping uh, stuff, um, but you just couldn't find it. And some of these, um, some of these SKUs never didn't even have any um, uh, online information about them at all. Um, so um, we, um, what we decided to do was um, we went to you know many different stores um, and um, picked up one of every single thing from the, the, the store, took it to a studio, photographed everything, um, and then uploaded all that onto, onto Instacart. Um, and you know, it cost us like $50,000 uh, to do that, to buy the entire grocery store. Um, but um, that allowed us to bootstrap our, our supply. And so now, it immediately became something that customers wanted. Um, and I remember we did this for one of the stores, um, and Overnight, we doubled, our, our demand doubled. Um, and so we're like, okay, well, this is clearly something that customers wanted. And so we did this for another store, another store, another store. Um, and we didn't know it at the, at the time, but um, what we were doing um, uh, by building this sort of data pipeline and um, uh, you know, collecting high quality images and, and uh, this metadata for the items was actually, this was going to become a, a, a key um, uh, you know, barrier to entry that we were building on, onto the Instacart platform. Um, and it still continues to be a barrier today and we're continuing to strengthen that uh, today as well. So for us, that's how we got started. When you first started the company, because I feel that um, often when people think about companies early, mm -hmm. they really index heavily on moats, but often mm -hmm. it takes a while to figure out what your moat right. will actually be or to build yep. it. Um, what did you think your moat was going to be when you started the company? Yeah, um, uh, I think that um, uh, I think a lot of times early stage companies just really focus on on growth. Um, and it makes sense, right? You know, trying to prove product market fit. You're looking at your your customer attention. Um, but I actually think that you actually have to be very deliberate about what your barriers to entry are going to be, and you have to work on them. Um, uh, just like you're working on your growth, your profitability, and, um, and so for us, um, 
you know, there were several moats that we thought at the beginning, and then over time we actually worked on those. Um, uh, first was doing this is actually very hard. Um, you know, we you know deliver millions and millions of unique items um, uh, in any given city. Um, just having that information uh, is actually not something that anyone else has, right? Um, um, and to do that efficiently, um, while well, you have to you know navigate the the, the people within the, the store efficiently. So we were like, well, this is actually technically quite complex, right? And as we continue to grow, this is going to only become more and a, a more of a barrier for us, um, uh, which is obviously you know wonderful. Um, um, but then as we continue to grow, uh, we noticed that we were becoming um, uh, very, very, very quickly, we were becoming a decent portion of uh, any uh, retailer's uh, store volume. Like in many cases, we were over 5% of their store volume. Um, and that, you know, they started to pay attention to that. Um, and, um, you know, as I discussed, one of the things that we noticed was that as soon as we added a store, our demand doubled, right? So there was, it was very clear that grocery selection really mattered, right? People cared about the grocery, the grocery stores that we had on our, on our platform. And so we developed very close and deep relationships with these retailers um, that, uh, you know, gave us exclusivity to that supply. Um, and so we had this technical moat, but we also built uh, this, um, this, you know, uh, this relationship mode as well. Um, and, then, and, and then we started to build more enterprise features for these retailers. Um, today, many of the retailers.coms are powered by Instacart. Um, and uh, that meant that um, we were more and more deeply integrated with these retailers. Um, all of this was something that we tracked on a quarterly basis and enrolled our teams on. Um, so it wasn't something that we sort of um, just said, well, it's just going to happen. It was something that was pretty deliberate. Yeah, I think you all were very thoughtful from early days in terms of how you would develop the business. And I feel yeah. like a lot of the things that you talked about earlier are now substantiating themselves. So it's, it's been interesting to watch that arc over time. Yeah. Um, I think many companies are less forward thinking and you see things happen organically. And sometimes yeah. that's amazing. And things organically form defensibility or other things. Right. And then sometimes it just you know leaves things wide open. Um, I guess uh, related to that, every company, or not every company, many companies end up with one or more moments where it feels like there's a big existential threat to the company or everything's yep. going to fail. Right. Did you have any moments like that? Several. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I could have used a few of those. Um, <laughs> um, um, I'll, I'll talk about one of them. Um, I had just come back um, from, you know, uh, you know, uh, a one week off, um, uh, and you know, so wonderful that uh, I was able to take the time off. The day I came back, um, I got a call from um, uh, the Whole Foods CEO at 6 a.m. in the morning. All right, this time Whole Foods was the largest, um, uh, you know, partner of ours. Um, they were, they had about, I think, 30 to 40 percent um, uh, of our overall sales were coming from Whole Foods. And so, of course, I was going to take the call. You know, it didn't matter if it was 6 a.m. Um, um, and um, I get on a call with him. Um, he tells me that um, Amazon had just paid like $18 billion um, uh, to buy uh, Whole Foods. Now, I'm a very paranoid person. Um, and, um, you know, you, know you, you 
tend to be you tend to be that when you're a founder. You have to understand you know where uh, risks are in your business. Um, but this was not in my you know uh, risk uh, bingo card. Um, um, and um, um, it was a very short call uh, because I didn't know what to say to him. Um, and um, you know I I it was just you know, refreshing, uh, you know, my um, social feed. And as soon as that announcement happened, the next set of announcements were, oh, Instacart's dead. Um, and uh, we started getting text messages from investors and, you know, parents um, uh, asking us if we're okay. Um, um, and, you know, it felt like sort of, um, uh, it kind of felt like this was going to be it. Like uh, this was going to be my, I don't know, 21st failure of a company um, because um, now our largest competitor owned our largest partner. Um, and so, you know, at the time I, I, um, I called in all hands, um, told the team that we are in war mode and the only thing that mattered at this point um, uh, was to fight this battle. Um, in the the next couple of weeks, we came together with a plan, um, and this was a you know like high beta plan, a very high risk plan, um, which was that we were going to sign um, every major grocery retailer onto our platform, and um, we were going to rapidly increase the Instacart uh, at the time Instacart Express today Instacart Plus membership, um, uh, so that we would be able to retain most of these customers. Um, and um, I was, you know, me and, and the team were, we were on the phone with effectively every retail CEO in America um, talking about what we could do. Um, we had um, this concept of um, uh, <laughs> um, the, the alliance of the willing, um, we were calling it internally, but um, uh, really, like, you know, it was how do we figure out, uh, you know, how do we work with uh, retailers? And we looked at every single thing that we could do to, to get them uh, over the line, which was how do we rapidly expand nationwide so that we were everywhere. We were in Rockford, Illinois. We were in Lubbock, Texas. The smallest cities, Instacart worked. Um, and uh, we figured out how to make the economics work in the smallest cities because you know, that's what it would take for some of these uh, larger retailers to sign with us. We scaled Instacart Enterprise with all kinds of functionality that would make it so that these retailers felt comfortable uh, putting their brand onto, onto Instacart. Um, and our, our, you know, there was uh, no meeting that, that, that we would not do in person, um, regardless of how many red eyes we had to take, we you know, made it happen. Um, and um, you know, by the time um, Whole Foods finally left the, the Instacart platform, um, there were less than 5% of our sales. Um, we had continued to, to drive a lot of growth, and we had, um, uh, you know, we had virtually every major grocery retailer on our platform. Um, and so, uh, you know, at the time, of course, this felt like, um, you know, uh, this is going to be, we're not going to make it, uh, but actually ended up being, um, you know, one of the best things that could have happened to the company. Um, yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing that story. Um, as you uh, built the company, uh, and as people build companies in general, they go through different types of investors, I think, mm -hmm. over the, the life cycle. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that investor mix shifted over time mm -hmm. um, and what you were looking for sort of at each stage of the company? Yeah, I think, um, you know, generally speaking in the series, uh, in the seed round, A, B, and maybe even sometimes C, um, at least for us, um, what you were, um, what, you were, what we were pitching was mostly, you know, look at the, the, the opportunity, we're going to take that over. It was mostly, you know, selling the growth, selling the, the, the opportunity, selling the dream. Um, and, um, and it makes sense because you're, you know, talking about um, in relative speak, relatively speaking, smaller amounts of, uh, smaller dollar amounts. Um, and um, um, when you're talking about later stage, it's all about, um, uh, you know, what is your, your, your next two, three year, five year plan? and how you're performing on that. Um, how is this company going to be valued as a public company? What, um, you know, uh, what are the, the real things that are gonna change in the next couple quarters that are actually going to allow you to, um, um, you know, get, hit the plan? Um, and so you're, you know, the, the, and there obviously you're, you're coming in with large dollar amounts, you're talking about uh, investors who are not, you know, at that point you're sort of not looking to lose money, you're looking to have, a, maybe uh, a smaller uh, uh, on a percentage basis return, but you're looking to make sure that you're going to return. Um, and so the types of investors that you have are different. Um, and it actually is very helpful to have those different investors. And I think that a lot of times um, um, as that shift happens, you really want that input from the later stage investors to see, okay, well, how is this company going to trade? What are the multiples going to be? Um, what are the, the public investors going to... Um, Think about uh, the risks in the business, and how do you um, really address those head-on uh, earlier in, in, in the company's journey? Um, and I would say, in fact, you know, it's actually very good to have that perspective in the early stages as well. Um, and looking back, I, I would have definitely done that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. What uh, was was there any specific insight or anything else that a later stage investor really brought to the table for you in terms of um, some aspect of uh, public markets or some aspect of running the business or some aspect of dispensability that that really landed? Um, you know, um, you know, every investor has a different sort of, um, or, you know, a lot of great investors have a different point of view that they bring. Um, so what we would do is um, um, before every Instacart meeting, board meeting, we would have sort of a smaller meeting. Um, and the, you know the board meeting is sort of perfunctory, and you're you got to get through stuff. And sometimes there's uh, insight, but a lot of times the best meetings are the ones right before them, um, where you have you know one or two investors who come in and who are you know really providing you like strategic guidance in terms of you know what if you um, slow down growth, what if you increase profitability, what if um, uh, you think about you know expanding uh, you know in, into a different category, different market, and so on. Um, and that conversation is actually the, the most helpful. And, um, uh, you know, for example, Chris, um, you know, brought in um, a lot of really interesting data um, uh, from um, what they were seeing uh, across many different um, uh, similar companies, domestically and internationally, right? And so we would have um, a lot of data in terms of retention, in terms of market share, in terms of um, conversion, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, cross shopping, um, and we could use that to make very important decisions. And so, I'd say um, 
those are the, the, the value add that I, I was, you know, uh, most uh, uh, grateful for. Yeah, makes sense. Um, are you able to talk about your new company at all or not, is it not? Um... I can talk about it at a high level. Okay, sure. Um, so first off, um, you know, I feel that starting a company is so painful. Yeah. I've started two. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I, I feel like uh, it's putting yourself through so much. Yeah. Uh, in terms of range of emotion and work mm -hmm. and like, why do it again? Um, honestly, I just didn't want um, my legacy to be defined by just one company. Um, it's a pretty great company though. Yeah. It is a wonderful it's a good, company. It's a great legacy. I'm, I'm very, yeah. very happy, uh, <laughs> of course. Um, um, but, you know, if, um, if, uh, I'm able to do it again in a different category. I think that'd be really wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and for me, um, uh, you know, that was always the motivation. Yeah. Um, How did you thinking about early team change between the first company and the second company? Mm -hmm. Pretty dramatically. Yeah. Actually, very dramatically. Um, you know, my my thought was in the early days uh, of a company, you always want people who are actually not that um, senior. Um, because you want people who are, you know, in the weeds or actually, you know, doing the work um, as as individual contributors, and so, um, uh, you know, we hired some wonderful people at Instacart in the early days, um, uh, who were really, you know, some of the best people I've ever worked with. Right, um, but they were ICs, um, and um, and this time around, what I've done is I've brought in uh, people. Um, who are actually much more senior, um, but they can scale down to be ICs. Um, and what that has allowed me to do is actually, um, um, you know, uh, not only benefit from their being able to go into the details, but their judgment as well. As well as, you know, in the event that they, we need to scale, I don't have to look for, you know, another manager. We already have the people who can recruit. Um, and I feel like that is, um, a much better way of approaching this. Um, and um, I think that's also a real benefit of a second time successful founder because you can access those people. That's right. And um, I feel like first time founders run into two issues. One is they can't access them, but mm -hmm. more importantly, they don't even think about it, right? Yeah. Like often if it's your first time really building something, uh, you often see the opposite. You're like, why do I need all these experienced people? That's right. Like, that's right. You know, they just want to talk about stuff. And in yeah. reality, they can be very valuable. Yeah, I mean, you know, you certainly want to watch out for the people who are, you uh, talk about stuff, and you want to watch out for those people regardless of how yeah, what yeah, stage yeah. you're in the Fair. company. Yeah. Um, but um, that was a big shift for me, and mm -hmm. and um, we're certainly just able to move much faster. Mm -hmm. I guess there's the team side of it. Were there other aspects of starting this company that you thought of very differently, or that you know were nuances or shifts relative to what you did with Instacart? Well, I mean, I think a second time founder, you have completely new set of challenges um, that you don't expect, uh, you know. Uh, um, you know, second time founder, you're thinking about like, well, what if it doesn't turn out to be that big, right? Like, when in the first time you're like, it's a billion dollar company, yeah. great, right? Um, uh, second time, you know, you really wanna make sure uh, that it can, you know, uh, meet your hurdle, right? Whatever that might be. Um, and, um, uh, you know, another thing that is that, like, um, uh, you know, uh, at least for me at Instacart, like, you know, I didn't really care, you know, what the problem was, I would jump in. 
now, you know, of course, because of um, uh, a lot of experience, it's just, um, I think a lot more about um, this problem's not gonna go away. How do I figure out how to scale myself? Um, and um, that's a pretty uh, meaningful difference as well. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Well, maybe what we can do is um, open things up for about five or 10 minutes of questions from the audience and then uh, Shreyan. Um, something Alad mentions is like the danger of spending too much time on an idea or market that's just not working. Yep. And like the myth that if you spend enough time on something, it'll just magically work, but give enough time. And so you said you started 20 companies in yep. two years, um, so obviously very fast paced. What convinced you each time to like abandon that idea or yep. market? And then what, what changed with Instacart? Like what gave you the conviction with Instacart that like, yep. this is the thing I now want to pursue and, and, and keep working on? Yeah, that is one of the hardest things as an investor, as, a, as an entrepreneur, um, to, to figure out when you know, your idea is not gonna be the one. Um, uh, because you sort of have to be emotionally invested in it, right, to actually put in the work when everyone's sort of like, no, it's not, it already is not gonna work, but you're like, you know, you believe in it. Um, and, um, and so, um, so the, the 20 company, 20 ideas and you know, building these 20 companies was actually very emotionally draining. Um, uh, but then I came up with a process, which really helped me, which was um, uh, anytime you come up with an idea, right, um, the first thing you want to do is write down the, the top 10 reasons why it's not going to work, all right? Um, you know, just write, that, write it down, right? And um, uh, try to prove those things, right, to prove that it's not going to work as fast as possible, right, in a day, in, a, in, in two days, in a week, right? Um, um, and before that, don't get emotionally invested in it. Um, um, if that passes it, right, um, you know, find the next 10 uh, reasons why it's not gonna work, right? Now this requires a little bit of work to like actually go into the details to figure out like, uh, what are the nuanced reasons, right? And this th these things take time. So, you, you know, you're gonna invest like maybe a month or two uh, at, at that point. You know, if you have some resources, maybe you can, it can be shorter, but um, it takes some time. Um, and, uh, and you know, if at that point, you know, you've gone through the 20 reasons why it's not gonna work and you've proven that, and like actually, no, there's, there's gonna be something there. You then are like, well, uh, you know, at that point, if you're still emotionally bought in, you should, you know, you should really consider it. Um, and um, uh, for me with Instacart, um, you know, I, I, um, uh, I, didn't, I unfortunately did not have this deliberate of a, you know, process at the time. Um, but um, uh, for every reason that you know I would come up with, I was like, well, you know, I, I had the supply chain background from uh, Amazon, so I was like, that's the hardest part in this company, all right? Um, if I can solve that, which I knew I could, um, you know, this company should exist. Um, and so, um, um, yeah, for me, I think Instacart was a little different. Do you think most founders err too much on the side of going on when they shouldn't or stopping too soon on ideas? I think uh, most founders um, uh, go um, spend way too much uh, time on ideas that are really not um, great companies. Um, there are uh, most likely going to be zombie companies, um, and they're just it's just sad uh, to see that. Um, uh, after uh, I stepped down from Instacart, I spent uh, about like six to nine months uh, uh, looking at climate. Um, to see if there's a really interesting opportunity there uh, and looked at space and a bunch of other areas. And um, uh, these are wonderful categories of really challenging problems to be solved there. 
Um, and then I would run into founders that had been working on this for, uh, ideas for like, you know, in some cases more than a decade. Um, and um, truly wonderful people, truly mission driven, obviously. Um, but the time for the idea is not now. Um, and so it's just not going to happen. All right. Um, and um, it's just, it's, it, it, you know, sometimes it's hard. Yeah, and I, I think that goes against the conventional wisdom, and I agree with you, right? Yeah. That the conventional wisdom is keep grinding no matter what, yeah. and n years in, you'll suddenly make it work, and usually it's the exact opposite. You yeah. just waste the best years of your sort of prime life. That's exactly right. Things, so. It's so sad to see that. Yeah. Um, uh, at any given point in time, any, any moment in like time, like there's only like, you know, a handful of really good ideas that can actually be possible, all right? Um, because of the way, you know, things in the world have changed, maybe there's some sort of a disruption, that's it, right? Um, um, and you know, the, the best resources, the resource allocation should be focused on those ideas, right? Um, I'd say most uh, founders should um, uh, also not, not uh, feel bad about doing, uh, uh, working on an idea that maybe other people are working on too, right? That's okay, because maybe the time for the idea is right now and maybe the way to win is better execution. Um, and um, so I, I'm a big proponent on um, focusing on where you can make the most impact and that's sort of a handful of ideas. Yeah. In the back, please. You know, uh, to be honest, there's like uh, probably many, um, but I look at it as like a learning opportunity, all right? Um, if you could have hired someone versus hired someone else, it would have been a very different uh, game. Um, if you could have gone into a different category versus another one. Um, uh, for me, um, um, you know, there's a lot of things we did right at Instacart, all right? Um, Sticking to focus on one category on on, on grocery, working with um, retailers as partners rather than competitors, um, and these decisions could have gone the other way. All right, um, I remember um, at 2015 or so, Jeff Bezos came on stage and said um, that this sort of way of doing uh, grocery shopping is just doesn't seem like it's the, the right solution. All right, and the whole team was like, "Shit!" Like, you know, this is Jeff Bezos saying this, right? Um, um, but, uh, you know, actually in, in our model, the marketplace model was superior to our first party fully integrated model for various reasons. And our first principles thinking was right. Um, and I should say this was in a period of time where everybody was talking about vertically integrated companies that's right. again. That's right. So you were actually being very contrarian relative to the big trend of the day, which was, oh, we'll just vertically integrate everything. That's so right. That was really interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, next question, and if there's anybody on the side that wants to, yeah. I'm curious how your role changed over the company evolved and what made you decide that you wanted to direct in the areas of, you know, there would be a public company for you. Yeah, um, the role changed quite significantly, um, and it, it needs to be. Um, um, you know, initially you're obviously um, uh, focused on every single problem in the company, um, and um, uh, as you continue to grow, you need to pick your battles. Uh, you need to pick the fires that you're going to fight uh, because there's just so many, so many things going on. Um, to the point where you get to where you're primarily focused on resource allocation, 
making sure that, that you have the right people around you who are you know doing that. Um, and um, uh, to, to the point where you continue to, to um, become more of um, uh, sort of um, you know a figurehead, right? And I, I mean that not in a, in a negative way, but like you sort of need to be as a as a as a as a company continues to grow. Um, and um, you're obviously you know in the details in some areas, but you also have to be the, the sort of the, the chief um, uh, you know cheerleader for the company. Um, and um, I loved uh, so many aspects of this. Um, there are aspects of it that, you know, frankly, was just like not part of what I found fun. Um, uh, to me, coming up with um, a new business model that could solve a meaningful problem in the world, that's fun, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, in putting all the pieces together to actually make it a reality, um, that's fun. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to do. Um, I think there's been a really interesting trend over the last couple of years too, where I feel like there's many more uh, founders of like this founding generation yeah. um, who want to do the next act. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting change from history, right? And there's yeah. other people who've done things like that over time, but um, you know, like Brian Armstrong is working on a biotech as well as running Coinbase. Like I feel like there's lots of examples now of people saying, I really want to do extra stuff in my life. Yeah. And that level of ambition, I think, is really impressive, right? Because I think it's something that before you'd kind of run a company and if you'd leave, you'd kind of go and retire, right? Yeah. There was a lot of almost like retirement people yeah. from the 90s. And so I think it's a very um, exciting trend in terms of people who really know how to do things now trying to go and do something again. I actually think that, you know, um, if you think about it, right, like you have to ask yourself, is it inertia? That's like making you, uh, uh, you know, uh, stick uh, uh, around, or is it the, you know, the first principle way of thinking about it? Is this like what your values are? What will you want to be doing, you know, with your life? Um, and I actually talked to dozens of founders, right, and how they're thinking about their second act, um, and it was clear that this was in everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. um, and um, for me, this is, uh, you know, I love doing just one thing at a time. Um, I think it is just, you know. I think that when you obsess about, about a problem, you can really figure out like uh, you can you find solutions in a way that you know, maybe you know giving it a part-time focus would just not be able to do. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, right there, please. Um, I remember reading a tweet. I think that you tweeted. I think on IPO day about like the story of how you focused on profitability and yeah. achieved that, and the story today around like what you did after um, you fulfilled the Whoop acquisition. Yeah. So, I guess I'm curious, like, is the, is it prior, is prioritization, like, what you would distill as the most important thing in, in key challenges like this, where, like, once you have the right priority and communicate to the team, and then you have the team that has, like, the right strength, like, that's sort of what allows you to prevail in these moments, or, like, how would you describe what allows you to uh, fight these challenges? Yeah, um, I actually think um, um, a small focused team versus a large, you know, team focused on many different things. I would bet on the small focused team every day, and that's why that's like one of the biggest advantages of of, of um, early stage companies, right? You have this um, team that is so focused on this one problem, right? While 
a larger company may have like 15 different product lines, right? Um, and so, you know, um, there's this incredible uh, quote, which is, you know, never waste a good crisis. And um, I've always been inspired by that, right? Um, and so anytime there is a crisis, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, like, you know, like two years later, where would I like to really be, right? Um, and how can I leverage this crisis uh, for the, the, you know, the, the team's advantage, right? Um, and, um, uh, and so when you have competition, that could be a very good forcing function for your company, right? Um, because everyone knows, you know, who is the enemy. Um, and that clarity is just so incredible that you're getting for free. Um, and so we loved having, um, uh, you know, that focus um, that brought to bear the whole company's creativity uh, to solve some very complex problems. And then in the back, yeah. Um, Yeah, um, I mean, we had, um, uh, you know, quite a different, quite a few inflection points. Um, uh, first was um, when we signed the deal with Whole Foods. That sort of validated that our model was actually something that could work, all right? Um, and um, most people don't know this, uh, but we had a terrible deal with Whole Foods. Um, and it was, it was, there was no math you could ever do that, that would ever make sense. Uh, I talked to the board about it and they were like, are you sure you wanna sign this deal? Um, and I was like, yes, we're gonna sign this deal. And um, it's a one year deal, but we're gonna sign it. And we're gonna prove to them that this actually makes sense. Um, and our next deal was three times better. And, um, you know, um, and that got us to, you know, it legitimized what Instacart was uh, to other grocers. And that allowed us to get the next deal in the next deal. Um, that was a massive inflection point for us. Um, you know, it'd be hard to say that COVID was not an inflection point. Um, uh, it, you know, of course, uh, you know, overnight we became um, a lifeline from being a convenience. Um, um, and that was just incredible the way that the company handled it. Um, um, in, in terms of, um, you know, um, regrets, I think there were, you know, um, I'm sure there's many, uh, if I, you know, step back, really reflect on it. Um, I think that, um, I'm just really proud of the way the team handled some of these inflection points, stepped up at the right moments. I think um, part of his biggest regret is not spending more time with me yeah. uh, <laughs> during that period. So, you know. Next time, next company. There you go, there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. All right, and then uh, maybe last question right there. I understand, um, you know, how you explained your framework for assessing bad ideas. Yeah. Um, or proving. Um, That's right. Something to pursue. But before that, um, going back to, you know, you pursuing 20 different things in a couple of years versus more recently, taking a step back, more than six months to assess markets as well as the landscape. How would you say your um, ideation process has evolved? And do you have a framework for that as well? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I'm looking at is um, the catalyst. What has changed in the industry? 
uh, that is very meaningful. And this is actually very hard to get to, right? There's, of course, when mobile came around, you're like, okay, great. You know, it, it was, you would have to be pretty silly to not see mobile, right? Like when it was um, around as a disruption. Um, but actually, to understand the catalysts in a different industry, you have to go deep in the industry to really know um, what are the, the, maybe there are regulatory changes, maybe there are, are, um, are um, you know, some other structural changes that you know, people are not talking about. Um, uh, for example, one thing that people forget between WebVan and Instacart was um, uh, credit card penetration had increased very dramatically. So now e-commerce was a thing. E-commerce couldn't have been uh, something that was successful in the WebVan era, right? And so there are all these catalysts that you know, are not something that you see in a, in a headline. So that's number one. First thing you're looking at in any industry is catalysts. What are the catalysts that are, are uh, changing? Um, and then after that, um, uh, you know, when you're evaluating a business uh, uh, as a founder, maybe this is different for uh, uh, an entrepreneur, uh, sorry, as an investor, um, the, the, the things that I'm looking at are, um, are sort of threefold. Number one, um, is it a good business? Um, obvious, like to say as, as an investor, but you know, you'd be surprised. Um, um, number two, is it going to be something that I'm going to be, I'm going to enjoy doing, right? I'm going to have fun. And number three, is it a mission that I can get behind? Um, the advice that you normally get is the opposite of that, right? Oh, is it a good mission, right? Oh, is it going to be something fun? And is it a good business, right? But the reality is that if it's not a good business, you're not going to have fun doing it, and you're not going to achieve the mission, right? So you sort of need to sort of reverse it as, as a founder. Um, and um, so now for each one of these categories, I looked at uh, climate, space, um, robotics, um, you know, a couple other areas, um, and I was just trying to look at that. Um, are there really, really good businesses that could have fun doing um, that could be um, uh, that couldn't have a you know a, 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 a mission that I could rally behind? Okay. Well, let's uh, thank Aperva for the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.